It was December of 1999. I was 17 years old. I had more of a beard than any 17-year-old should have had. And I didn't just have a beard, but I had a big question. The question wasn't about Y2K and when the world was going to end. The question wasn't about why all these girls didn't want to date me. It was a bigger question. You see, my life had just been utterly changed by Jesus. I came to know him, and I could not deny the reality of God with how he was at work in my life. But I had one question in mind. I just couldn't shake it. I started going to church, and I always brought a bunch of questions because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so I just brought my questions. And then, you know, one by one, these things are starting to get addressed. And well, my life is changing. It's gone from like anger and fist fights to like Bible studies and serving homeless people. And pretty much everything I was wondering about started to be addressed. But there's one question that stuck with me that I couldn't shake. It wasn't a question, a big question like, why is there suffering in the world? Or how can Jesus be fully God and fully human? I just wanted these Christians to be able to answer one question for me. And the question is, why is prayer so boring? <laughs> why is it so boring? Why is it that I'm always falling asleep during prayer? And I felt ashamed that that was my question. But the reality was, I was having a hard time. I loved everything. We were looking in the Bible. We were serving homeless folks. We were doing everything. But then when it came to prayer time, I struggled. I was in this group uh, of, of Christians, a small group. And I would just see everyone fold their hands and close their eyes. And I'm trying to figure out how to do this prayer thing. And then they would usually mumble some vague religious phrases with the word blessing being very prominent. It seemed like this was the Christian version of timeout, like where you just, you go in there and you think about what you did, right? <laughs> and my whole goal in the time of prayer was to not cuss and, and to not fall asleep. After about five minutes, I would, I would start to feel it come and my mind would drift into things like, like churros and the Phoenix Suns. And then about five minutes after that, I was asleep. And I came to the conclusion that either I didn't understand prayer or that Christians had created the world's greatest solution to insomnia. They had nailed it. Why is prayer so boring was my question. Well, over the years, I've kind of sorted a little bit of that out. I'm a pastor. I think you have to like at least like prayer a little bit in order to be a pastor. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves, sometimes it's, we struggle to pray. It can feel irrelevant. It can feel boring. And, and, and why is that? I think a lot of people would suggest the easy, low-hanging fruit, it's either a lack of discipline or a lack of love for God, or just distraction. And maybe there's some element of truth to that, but I think that there's something that's missing. And I think this is it. 
I think that most of us, in the way that we've learned how to pray and how we've conceived of prayer, most of us play, pray like computers and not humans. Think about this. A computer is this inanimate object, no emotions, no senses, transmitting information off to a distant server that's transmitting information back. Do we conceive of prayer that way? Or do we pray like a human? Humans have emotions. They have senses. They can see and smell and hear. They have relationships and imagination. And so often, the way that we pray is like a computer and not a human engaging all of who we are. And there's many reasons for it, but I think the main culprit is this. Go ahead and throw that picture up there. That. What you have right there is a posture of prayer, eyes closed, hands folded, that you cannot find anywhere in the Bible. This was invented by moms to get their kids to stop messing around, right? <laughs> but there's nothing really wrong with praying that way. Sometimes it helps you concentrate. But I think it can shape a posture of prayer where we're trying to block out everything that's happening in the world, block out emotions, block out everything, and close our eyes and just have this like vague mystical experience. But the reality is that as humans, and when you look in Scripture and the way that it talks about prayer, it, it, prayer is this thing that we should do, metaphorically speaking, with our eyes open, engaging the world, engaging our senses, engaging the real stuff of life. And we need someone to show us how to pray, to show us how to pray like a human and not like a computer. And that's what we're looking at today. In Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, in Luke chapter 1, we see this bold, emotional celebration of, his, of God and his actions in the world. The words of this prayer, more intense than most rap lyrics, more revolutionary than the Declaration of Independence. And this prayer can be for us a masterclass on how to pray like a real human with our eyes open seeing what God wants us to see. So go ahead, open your Bibles, Luke chapter one, verse 46, and we're gonna dive in and we're gonna see what Mary and her prayer can teach us about prayer so that we can be a people of prayer and action in response to the God who hears our prayers. So number one, what can we learn? What can we learn from Mary? How can we pray with our eyes open? Well, the first thing I think we want to see that Mary would want us to see is to see God's character. When you read this passage, this prayer, the thing that stands out to me the most is that there is not a single prayer request. She's not asking God for anything. It's good to ask God for things. But most of the time, our prayers are dominated by that. But her prayer is dominated by focusing on God and his character and who he is. She's not bringing a Christmas list to a divine Santa Claus, but she is actually praising God for who he is. You see this in the opening words in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. That her inner being is, is magnifying God and who he is, is oriented toward him. 
But then in verses 49 and 50, uh, it brings out these two aspects of God's character that need to be embraced, his mercy and his might. It says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His might and his mercy, both of them held together, not one or the other. Now, what's interesting is that these words at first can strike us as just vague religious words like might. Who's using the word might on a daily basis, like mighty? Like you're either like a superhero or something like that. Like you don't introduce your friend. You're like, this is my friend. He's kind. He's a real estate agent. And he's also very mighty. Like that's not in the vernacular. But as I was looking at this word in the original language, it's dynatos. And uh, does that sound like anything? Sounds like dynamite. It's from the word that we get dynamite from. Um, and it's, it's this idea of God's power and his ability to get things done. In other words, God is like the explosives, the grenade that has power that you cannot ignore. And when it ignites, there is something happening in that moment that is powerful. And so Mary... What she's doing in this prayer is she is acknowledging the mightiness of God, the grenade of God's goodness and of his power. She sees that that God has been all throughout history lobbing grenades of his power into the world, celebrating the fact that, that he did things like parting the Red Sea, ending famines, taking down tyrants like Pharaoh, She knows that God is the grenade in the future, who's who's lobbing into the future the power that is going to end poverty and put arrogant kings to be dethroned and to let all suffering cease. And she even knows that in this moment that God has put the grenade of redemption in her womb, that That within a few months, this baby is going to enter into the world and through his life and death and resurrection is going to detonate in a way that does away with all disease, with all sin, with all distance from God, with all tears and all that's broken. He is powerful and mighty and able to do it. A God able to answer prayers. But then she also celebrates his mercy. Mercy is another one of those words that we're not just dropping every day. Maybe it's a little more common than mighty, but like the, I remember the only time I've really used the word mercy is when you're like playing that game where you like try to break each other's fingers and stuff. <laughs> but that's not what this has in mind, right? But mercy is undeserved favor and kindness. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy speaks to the nearness of God, of his love, of his kindness. What Mary doesn't know, but will one day find out, is that in her very womb is the one who is so merciful that he's not about lobbing the grenades of power, but he also falls on the grenades of sin, Satan, and death and absorbs it into his own body on the cross. Merciful, extending kindness and favor 
and nearness to those who need it. You have might and you have mercy. You have God's bigness and his nearness. His kindness and love and his strength and his power. Each of these nourish us in different ways. You see, his, his might and his power helps us know that there's a God who's actually strong enough to answer our prayers and his mercy shows us that there's a God who actually cares and wants to listen. Now you might be asking, why? Why is Mary and why do we praise God? Why do we sing these songs and have these prayers that talk about how good and mighty and merciful God is? I mean, did he forget? Does he need like a constant reminder? No. Is he like, like insecure and like fishing for compliments? No. He doesn't need it. But we do. When we praise him, his very character nourishes our soul. But it has to be together. We've got to have a vision of God that of his both power and his mercy, his might and his mercy and when one of these is absent, it creates a, a deficiency in our soul, a nutrient, a spiritual nutrient deficiency. Like we know what nutrient deficiencies are like. Like if you don't have calcium, you got weak bones. If you don't have iron, you have fatigue or you pass out. But what happens when you are lacking either a sense of God's might or his mercy? We need both. To illustrate this, I want to ask a question to you. If you had to only eat one food and you had to be as healthy as you could possibly be, what's the one food that you would eat? What's like the healthiest food that everyone agrees on? Avocado. Avocado. That's a good one. That's, what is it? Milk. Uh, someone from the milk lobby's in here. Um, what else? I'm going to, spinach, there you go, steak. So this won't, I'm all for that one. That one's great. I heard a story years ago of a woman who was reading all of like the books and blogs and, and it was talking about how all, all different diets talk about how you need to cut this one thing out of your, your diet, but they all can agree on like leafy greens and brassicas and those sorts of things. So she said, that's all I'm eating, spinach, broccoli, all that. And uh, what happened to her? She went to the hospital. She was in a coma because she was focused only on one good thing, but was deficient in the other things that she really needed. And I think when it comes to God's might and his mercy, his bigness and his nearness, we tend to fall on different sides of that. And we tend to emphasize different aspects of who he is. And when it's out of balance, we become deficient. Some of you in here have a mercy deficiency. It's when you fail to see God's care for you and his love for you. You know he's big. You know he's strong. And you approach him with reverence. But you do not have enough mercy in your life. What are the symptoms of this? The mercy deficiency is when we see, as God, we see God as strong enough to answer our prayers, but we feel like he doesn't care. You're often trying to like earn his favor and earn his love. You treat him as an impersonal deity 
who doesn't have time for you. This way of approaching God is like treating him as a cosmic banker who has what you need, and he might give it to you, but he doesn't like you very much and wants to move you along. And if that is you, you're probably feeling a sense of numbness in your inner being. And I want to encourage you to pay attention, to feast on God's mercy. As we're having these uh, prayer times, 146 each afternoon or whenever you're available to do it, take some time. And if you are mercy deficient, just focus on God's kindness and nearness and his love and his mercy towards you and feast on that. Some of you in here have a mightiness deficiency. And that's when you lack a sense of God's power and uh, of, of, of his strength. You know that uh, he's, he's kind. You know that he loves you. You know he's relational. But you lack a sense of how big and holy he is. What are some of the symptoms of this one? Well, prayer is a very personal thing for you. It's very sentimental, but you treat it as a good practice that's healthy for you. But there's no actual power. You're not talking to a God who can actually do anything. It's a very self-help approach to prayer. It's very similar to how meditation is often talked about. And when we do this, we treat God like this spiritual teddy bear, like this blankie that gives us comfort but doesn't actually protect us from anything. And this often produces a life where we don't take God very seriously, but then end up taking ourselves really seriously. We end up having a bunch of anxious flurry of activity. We end up trying to control things because we don't believe in a God who's big and powerful and in control. So my question to you is, do you have a mightiness deficiency? And in your times of prayer, do you need to encounter a big God that's way bigger than you? Mighty and mercy, we need them both to, to have our souls nourished as we open our eyes and see who God is. Well, the second thing we need to see, the second thing that Mary shows us as we learn how to pray with our eyes open is to see all of life. Like we talk a lot about all of life is all for Jesus. And what, what that means is that everything from family to work to marriage, to the stuff that's on the news, social issues, art, that it all matters to God and it all belongs to him. But I, and I, I've noticed that so many of us actually really believe that and live in that way. But the last place for it to really affect is our prayer life. Do we have an all of life prayer life? I think some of the reason why our prayers are so boring and dry is because they're just like a functional medical update to God and, and, and like vague spiritual stuff, but never actually engage the real stuff of life, the stuff that you're thinking about and engaged in all day long. When was the last time you thanked God for your hamstrings after a good run? <laughs> or prayed for wisdom as you craft a new spreadsheet, <laughs> or use uh, news headlines as a, as a list for prayer, asking God's kingdom to come, or for the, the college students in here, when was the last time you flipped through your physics textbook 
and really praise the God who created the universe and created these things you're learning about. That will invigorate your prayer life because you're actually taking the stuff that God created, the stuff that God cares about, and you're engaging with him about it. And that's what Mary's doing here. In verses 51 through 53, you hit this section where there's a number of reversals, where where Mary is praising God for the way that he acts throughout the biblical story in reversing the realities of the world, where he exalts the poor, the rejected, and the oppressed, and he humbles the powerful and the proud. This is an explosive prayer that engages real life. This is why, by the way, this section here is why this prayer has been banned by multiple dictators. It says... He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There's so much to unpack here. But one thing I just want to draw out of this section is that Mary's prayers are engaging the real realities of life. In this, in this prayer, there's uh, addressing hunger and poverty and economics and politics. And you see that in the Psalms. You see it in other places in Scripture. Jeremiah 29.7, we talk about it a lot. To seek the flourishing of the city, seek the shalom of the city. But what it also says in that verse, which I want to own, doesn't get highlighted a lot, is to pray to the Lord on its behalf. To pray for the flourishing of the city, all aspects of the city, all of life. And, and Mary needs this, just like we need it. Because she doesn't live in some like commune that's disconnected from the world, but she lives in the real br- brutal realities of life. She lives under military occupation from Rome, where there's corrupt government at every level corrupt religious leaders, there's poverty, there's disease, there's this longing for the Messiah to come, and she brings it to God in prayer. I actually think Mary could relate to a lot of the things that we talk about and we're going through. You know, we're highlighting a different prayer and action group each week, and I think Mary could be a part of any one of these prayer and action groups because of what she's about to experience in her life. Number one, sanctity of life. She could relate to that group as her son who's about to be born is about to be hunted down by Herod just as an infant, his life in danger. She could relate to the refugee group as her and Joseph and Jesus will have to ultimately flee from Herod into Egypt and live out their early days as refugees. I think the very definition of an at-risk youth is a pregnant teenage girl in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. She can relate to that. And for criminal justice, she's going to grow up to see her child falsely accused and convicted and executed on the cross. She's going to see some brutal realities. And if this prayer is any indicator, that's going to be a part of her real engagement with God, her real prayer life. Praying about all of life. The best example I know of this um, is actually my wife. 
Um, we, I give her a lot of things to pray for, uh, just by my existence in the world. Um, <laughs> but one time, about 10 years ago, we had intentionally moved into this neighborhood that had a lot of Somali refugees wanted to extend hospitality and build friendships. And we had heard from multiple people that there was one massage parlor that was a front for like some sex trafficking that was going on. And that um, they were in that neighborhood to take advantage of those who are coming uh, as immigrants and refugees. And we tried reaching out to certain people, certain authorities, and everyone just kept saying, there's nothing we can do unless you have some like real evidence. So I like start strategizing and like coming up with these plans on how to fix this, like some like sting operation from some dude who has no idea what he's talking about. I start posting things on social media, kind of getting that like the pat on the back at the same time, right? And did my plans work? No. They didn't work because within two weeks, that place had shut down, boarded up, empty. And I had found out that my wife had been fasting and praying for it to shut down. And God heard her prayers and answered her prayers. Yeah. But the real sad thing was, if I'm going to be honest, I never once prayed about this thing. I had a bigger view of my own abilities than actually God's ability. And I didn't pray. And as I think about it, the content of my social media posts were probably very similar to the content of Jenny's prayers, but hers were aimed at God and mine were just aimed at the masses that I wanted to pat me on the back. And God heard her prayer and acted and responded. And she knew that she needed to engage all of life in prayer. So let me ask you, what's the area of your life that you care the most about, but you pray the least about. I think everyone has these areas, these areas that you are really locked in on and you care about, but it never makes it into your life with God. For some of us, it's uh, the news. Uh, you're just watching and listening to news stuff all day long, and you're getting all frustrated and then, you know, you wanna post something. When was the last time you used the, the headlines as your prayer list, showing you how to pray for the world? Social media. How often do we pray before we post or pray about what we're seeing? I just remembered this morning that when Arif said that he saw my post on Colossians, um, and, and that was a big part of him coming to faith, I just remembered that like in that season, it was a season where I committed to waiting a week before posting anything about a current event and to pray and ask God what I should post and if I should post the things that are on my mind. And God used that Colossians 1 as a part of him diving into scripture, praying about all of life. Maybe pray through your bank statement or pray through your 2022 goals. We always pray about health on the back end when it's failing, but like when it comes to preventative stuff, it's like, oh, I'll, I know the program. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the lift weights and stuff like that. But what about praying, like thinking through your body and praying for your heart and your liver and those sorts of things? Let's pray in all of life. Pray about all of life. When finally we see this invitation 
to pray with our eyes open and to see our emotions. Mary helps us see our emotions. I think one of the things I struggled with early on in prayer is often when Christians get together, we, we pray like a community of dry, stoic potatoes who just have no sadness, no anger, no joy. And if I'm honest, I think some of that is shaped by the like pictures we see of like biblical characters and how they're painted. My, my first flinch, my like preconceived ideas of Mary before I was a Christian uh, was that she was not totally fun, right? Like if you throw up that picture again uh, of Mary, this does not seem like someone you want to hang out with. She seems like she's like maybe at best like, like the least successful Jedi in training <laughs> or maybe like a sad librarian. Like the person in this, this picture definitely has like strong opinions about mops. Like this is not an emotional, exciting person. This is someone who like her is sustained by celery and like communion bread and that's it, right? <laughs> Stale, boring, no emotion. But guess what? That's not Mary. That's just a picture. If you want a real picture of Mary, it's this prayer that we are looking at right now that paints a picture of this wild, revolutionary woman who's, who's God's conduit of bringing uh, the Messiah into the world. And she prays with some emotion. The obvious one is in verse 47 where she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see that she's coming with joy. But there are some imp other implicit emotions here in this prayer. You get a sense of relief, like finally the Messiah has come to overthrow the evil in the world. And even a sense of, of like anger and desperation as, as she reflects on uh, the, 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 those who are hungry and, and the, the kings who are oppressing people, that finally that you get the sense that she had been praying before, longing for the Messiah to come with sadness and with anger and with relief. And really what Mary's doing is not novel. She's echoing the Psalms, which carry a ton of emotion in them. You got Psalm 42 with this, this language of like, day and night, I eat my own tears to talk about sadness. That's like emo punk rock language right there. Or anger. Psalm 58 talks about asking God to knock the teeth out of the mouth of his enemies. That's real anger. That's raw emotion right there. And God is inviting us to bring the real and the raw emotion to him in prayer. But we often hesitate to do that, don't we? And I think it's because we think it's irreverent. Like you can't say those things around God. But who are you hiding from? God already knows. He already knows that you are ticked off. He already knows that you are sad. He already knows that you are just desperate. So why not bring the realness to him in prayer? 
And that's also the space where he can deal with it and reorient you towards what is right. Like not all of the emotions in, in the Psalms are like these godly emotions. It's not affirming the fact that you should just want to knock the teeth out of people's mouth. But what it's saying is you bring those things to God and you let him deal with it because otherwise you're going to deal with it in some other way and you might knock the teeth out of somebody's mouth. Bringing our real and raw emotions to God in prayer. And I think that this is very important right now. Because as I just pay attention, especially in the last month or two, I've noticed just this theme of like heightened big emotions, of like real sadness, of like real anger. And I think it's important because society has two answers for how to deal with your emotions, and, and both of them are unhealthy, I think. Number one is ignoring your emotion. Some of you just say, I'm just going to grip my teeth and stuff it down and toughen up. You paste a little fake smile on your face. And C.S. Lewis talks about how that can work for a little while. But ultimately, when you start cutting off the so-called negative emotions like sadness and anger and fear... You end up becoming numb to them, but you end up also becoming numb to things like joy and love and wonder. And when you ignore things, you end up just deadening your heart and numbing your heart. That's not the way to deal with it. But then the pendulum has swung the other way to where emotions are like the most celebrated thing, to where we, it almost says to obey your emotions. Sprite used to be about obey your thirst, Rest of society is like, obey your emotions. And it's where your emotions are so valid, so important, that they become the source of decision-making, that, that your whole sense of truth and reality comes from how you feel, and ultimately, you let your emotions become the driver of your life. And when the emotions become the driver, they drive you into a ditch every time. There are some destructive things happening. There are some people who are wrecking their lives and their families by letting emotions lead in the driver's seat. Some are, are being driven by anger. Anger's in the driver's seat, and you're saying things to your kids that are going to put deep wounds in their life. Driven by anger. Driven by sadness into another bottle. Driven by pleasure into pornography or an affair. And if you let that in the driver's seat, it will drive you into the ditch. So we neither ignore our emotions nor obey them and let them drive our life. So what do you do with them? You pray your emotions. You bring them and their realness to God. Some of you need to bring your fear to God. The best tutor I know for this, the best example I know for this is actually my daughter. I mean, I love her prayers. They're beautiful. Except one of them the other day threw me off a little bit. I was walking past her room and I heard her praying and her prayer was this. Oh no, I'm afraid mom and dad are going to be Pharisees today and they're not going to let me go to the aquarium. <laughs> now, she's got to adjust some stuff with her attitude, but... I think God loves the realness and the honesty of her fears in that moment. 
Can we be real with God? Some of you are afraid that you're going to be alone for the rest of your life. You've acted with integrity. You haven't gone on the hookup apps. And you're afraid that you're going to be alone. You can bring that fear to God. He wants to hear from you. Some of you need to bring your pleasure to God. I knew a guy. uh, He was an ASU student. And he did one of the coolest things I've ever heard of. He had a hard time walking around ASU uh, because there were all these beautiful girls that he was always wanting to to look at. And he started to say, you know what? I'm just going to thank God every time I see one of them. (laughs) And it sounds silly, but he would, uh, upon seeing an attractive woman, he would thank God for them. He said, hey, you did a great job there. (laughs) But would you help me to see them as an image bearer of yours? And as a a potential sister of mine and help me treat him that way. And that undercut some of the the dehumanizing, sexualizing way that he was viewing women. But he brought it to prayer instead of just hiding it in shame. Some of you need to bring your anger to God. I've never learned how to pray from people more than praying with refugees from war-torn countries. Because you cannot come with just this whatever apathetic attitude when your village has been burnt down, when someone has killed a family member, when you have been separated from your home and are in a place that you do not understand. And when I spent time praying with them, some of the first times it was startling to me with the loud cries and the deep emotions that would, would emerge. But that was really bringing the anger to God, really bringing the sadness to God. Some of you have some big anger that you need to actually bring into your prayer life. So I ask, what are the emotions that you are not bringing to God? And in your time of prayer, in 146 in the afternoon or whatever time it is, can you take a time this week to just actually bring the raw emotions? So we've seen Mary in her masterclass on prayer. She's teaching us to pray with our eyes open, to see God's character, to see all of life, and to see our emotions. And as we come to the table, I don't want to land on that because I want to land on the most important seeing that's happening in this prayer. And it's not what we see, it's not what Mary sees. It's the reality that God sees us. Because this whole prayer thing is worthless unless there is a real God who actually sees us. And Mary knew it. She said, you have looked on the humble estate of your servant. She says, you have done great things for me. She knew that God saw her and heard her prayers. And at the birth of Jesus, what was happening in Advent is God's action to address all that's broken in the world, sin and disease and Satan and death and poverty and pain. But even in the midst of it, he never lost sight of this teenage girl wandering through the back streets of Bethlehem. And he hasn't lost sight of you either. 
So as we become more and more a people of prayer in response to the God who hears our prayers, know that it's not just about what we see, but it's about the God who sees us. Let's pray. God, I, I, I pray for everyone here who just senses that they are not seen by you, that in this moment, they would sense your gaze, your affection. God, you are good. You are powerful and mighty. You are able to answer prayers and to change all that's broken, and you are so merciful. And we thank you, Jesus, for the mercy that didn't just happen in your birth, but the mercy that happened through your life and death and resurrection. And so we celebrate that. And we ask that we would sense your invitation even in this moment as we come and take communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take some time to respond to God now. Let's come forward. If you need prayer, there's prayer on either side of the room. Let's come forward and take communion and remember the God who sees us and invites us to feast with him. And let's worship together now.